Welcome to Tisky Sour. We have an absolutely jam-packed show for you this evening. We're talking about the latest grim turn that the Tory leadership race has taken. It started off being all about transphobia. Now they've switched to racism. We'll also be discussing the NHS on its knees and Pfizer Shaheen getting selected as a Labour candidate. Again, one of the rare pieces of good news in the party, although it was, was followed by a lot of smearing. We'll be discussing and debunking that um, we'll also talk about Rachel Reeves' performance this morning on nationalising rail. Um, all a little bit confusing, I have to say. To make sense of it all, I'm joined all evening by Ash Sarkar. How are you doing, Ash? I'm really good. I'm just really glad that racism is back on the agenda because <laughs> those trans people had been hogging the limelight a bit too long. <laughs> and I was like, listen, man, get in line. We are up first for a Tory moral panic. Thank you very much. This is your week. This is the week for, for ethnic minorities to take the hit when it comes to the race to be the next prime minister. Very depressing times. Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss have spent the weekend talking about immigration. As you can probably guess, it turned into the World Championship of Competitive Racism. Let's start by looking at Rishi Sunak's awkward anti-migrant campaign vid. Numbers of people crossing the channel in small boats has climbed from 297 in 2018 to almost 29,000 This is complete. 254 people crossed the channel on Sunday. had absconded. I began my campaign by telling you that the first emergency my government will tackle is our NHS backlog emergency. Now I want to talk about the second, immigration. But before I do, let me make one thing very clear. I'm not looking for scapegoats. This issue is morally complex and involve real trade-offs. Good people can reach different conclusions, but what must no longer happen is that choices are taken off the table and kept away from public scrutiny and debate. We have to talk about immigration. Let's be honest, our system is broken. We do not have control of our borders. Every year, thousands and thousands of people come into the UK illegally. Often, we don't know who they are, where they're from, and why they're here. These are not bad people, but it makes a mockery of our system and it must stop. The current chaotic free-for-all is simply no way for a serious country to run itself. This is a genuine emergency and must be addressed. I don't care if you believe that migration should be high or low, surely we can all agree that it must be legal, orderly and controlled. At the moment, it's none of those things. I know what racism is. I've experienced it myself. So I want to be clear with you all there is absolutely nothing racist about wanting Britain to have secure borders that work. In fact, those immigrants who came here legally are the first to say, we play by the rules. Why should other people get away with breaking them? Law-abiding citizens are dismayed when they see boat after boat full of illegal migrants coming from safe European countries with our sailors and coast guards seemingly powerless to stop them. This must stop. 
That was Rishi Sunak inventing a new YouTube genre, migrant bashing for insomniacs. I feel like I was you know, almost semi-asleep watching that, and I'm supposed to be hosting a show on, on YouTube. I will gather my senses again. The creepily hypnotic video came alongside a media blitz. The Sunday Telegraph ran with this headline, Sunak, I would cap number of refugees. Inside the paper, Rishi Sunak wrote this, numbers should be determined by need. Our parliament will be given control of the number of refugees we accept each year. Those fleeing imminent danger will be prioritized, and the only route to asylum here will be a safe and legal one. So the idea that the number of re refugees we set should be determined by our need, not the needs of refugees, is certainly novel. And I think it likely contravenes international law, as does the second part of his plan, which is to house asylum seekers on cruise ships, so floating prisons, in other words. Of course, Liz Truss didn't want to miss out on the racist race to the bottom. The Mail on Sunday are backing Truss, and they led this weekend with Truss. I'd send more migrants to Africa. That's sounding quite a lot like the National Front there. In an interview with the paper, she said this, The Rwanda policy is the right policy. I'm determined to see it through to full implementation, as well as exploring other countries that we can work on similar partnerships with. It's the right thing to do. The Trust campaign also released this graphic. So Liz for leader, she will pledge to introduce tough, underlined, measures to deter illegal channel crossings. As she says, she will expand the Rwanda policy with more countries, reinforce border force with more staff, and we will not cower to the European Court on Human Rights and ensure it works for Britain. Ash, this is all pretty goddamn grim, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's thoroughly depressing, not least because we've actually had a lot of news stories breaking in the last few months, which have really shown you what the human cost is of scaremongering over migrants. One is that there have been repeated instances of unaccompanied minors, many of whom are Ethiopian and Eritrean, housed in terrible conditions, and many of whom have self-harmed, some have taken their own lives. There's also been the case just in April of this year of a 17-year-old black British boy who is autistic and nonverbal. He went missing after having been sectioned and he was eventually found in an immigration detention center, which is where he'd been sent because the police decided that he was Nigerian, despite him having never been to Nigeria, despite him not being Nigerian and despite him having a Mancunian accent. Now, when you create this kind of hostile environment where every level of the state is invested in operating as an extension of the border force, these are the kinds of things that happen. There's a human cost often being borne by very young, very vulnerable people. I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things, particularly in that Sunak video. Like, Michael, it can't just be me who thinks that the guy is a total wetty, because here he is advocating for a immigration policy which would give Enoch Powell morning wood. And yet at the same time, he's taking all these pains of going, look, good people can come to a totally different opinion. Nobody here is racist. 
I'm brown myself. I have been for many years and I know what racism is. It's like he wants all of the social plaudits that you could get as a kind of center-right Cameroon. Now, obviously, David Cameron and his cabinet had terrible immigration policy as well, but it's like he wants to be accepted as part of that kind of chipping Norton set while at the same time pitching right because the Conservative Party faithful have effectively been radicalized in the years through UKIP and the hostile environment and, you know, all of their sadistic fantasies essentially being fulfilled through subsequent, you know, home office policies. And I just think that that's a form of racism, which I have even less respect for, if that's possible. That yes, I want to have a racist state, which treats vulnerable people as though they are criminals and makes their lives miserable for an audience of newspaper proprietors and radicalized pensioners. But you know, I don't need to think badly of me for it. Look, bitch, either go full Nick Griffin or go home. Don't waste my time. The policies were really Nick Griffin. I mean, this idea that you have a cap on refugee numbers, like it's kind of normal for countries to set a cap on economic migration. I don't necessarily agree with it, but that's sort of something which is understood. You know, countries do that and it's normal when you hear about economic migration, for a government to say, we need immigration to work for us, therefore we're going to set these points-based systems, we're going to set these targets, we're going to say we need this many people to work in IT or whatever. The sort of conventional way of understanding economic migration from mainstream politics, as you say, we need this to work for our economy. Refugee policy is supposed to be entirely different. So refugee policy is supposed to work by, you say, this, this isn't about the needs of, of the country where people are traveling to. This is about the needs of the individual. The individual needs sanctuary. You're not letting them in because you have this gap in your labor market. You're letting them in because you know, international law says that if someone is fleeing persecution, you have to give them refuge, right? And, and Rishi Sunak is saying, what we're going to say is, look, you've got a great claim. Clearly, your government would kill you or your family if you return to your country. We can see that very, very clear. But sorry, um, we've had a few too many refugees this year. So we're going to have to send your boat back. Or we're going to have to deport you to wherever. I mean, I don't know where these people are going to be deported to. Are they going to deport them back to the place where they're going to get killed? Are they going to try and find, I suppose, presumably some other third country, Rwanda style? But essentially, wherever you're going to send these people, you're saying, you've got a valid claim, but we're full. Now, that is, that's not how refugee policy is supposed to work. It's also just incredibly pathetic. I mean, we talk about this all the time on the show, this narrative that Britain is full to the brink with migrants and refugees. We've taken our fair share. Other people have to start taking a load. We take a pathetic number of refugees and asylum seekers. I often show you um, um, the chart of how much fewer refugees and asylum seekers we take than the European average. You can also look at countries like Lebanon, a population of 6.7 million people. They've taken 1.5 Syrians, 1.5 million Syrians, sorry, um, after the Syrian civil war. Now we've got 20 odd thousand people crossing the channel, country of 60 million people, very wealthy, by the way. And we're saying, oh, no, we're going to, we, we couldn't possibly have one more refugee in this country because the whole thing would collapse. It's grim, it's morally wrong, and it's also, I think, absolutely pathetic. The kind of policies that if this was said 10 years ago, people would feel like, that is extreme. That's kind of UKIP-style policy, a cap on refugees. That's really breaking new ground when it comes to the miserableness of, of British asylum policy. So really, really disgusting stuff. As you say, I'm sure because of the tone he says it in, it will be more than welcome on the comment pages of The Times and The Sunday Times. The proposals, for their part, have invited condemnation and to Amnesty International. Steve Valdez-Simmons told The Guardian, It is dreadful that those who aspire to lead are showing no capacity for leadership, which requires focus on what is possible, necessary, and lawful. 
Instead, they are setting out on the same dismal course of blaming people, fleeing persecution, lawyers and courts for all the ills that our politicians continue to heap upon everyone, rather than taking responsibility for making our asylum system work fairly and efficiently. That's very well put. And the kind of thing you're probably not going to hear from many elected politicians in Britain because they're all too terrified to actually say what they believe or to stand up for human rights when it comes to this topic. I'm sure we'll come back to this. I imagine this is going to come up again in this leadership race. And I can't imagine it's going to be pretty because these are people campaigning to try and appeal to a Tory party membership, which is much, much more racist, I think, than the rest of the population. I think 8% of people are currently putting migration as one of their key concerns, but still they think that they have to campaign to become prime minister on this. Very, very grim times. Let's move to our next story. The struggles of getting a GP appointment and epic waiting lists for routine care means Britons are waking up to the appalling state of our Tory-run NHS. And there was one story in the papers this weekend that demonstrated just how severe the crisis has become. The Telegraph reported this. It was just before 5am on February the 20th when Jonathan awoke and told his partner he couldn't breathe. As the 47-year-old gasped for breath, his partner dialed 999. She was told there would be a two-hour wait for an ambulance. She again stressed the seriousness of the situation and the call handler asked her if she knew where the nearest defibrillator was. That's the sort of electric shock machine that gets your heart working again. Of course I don't, came the reply. They told her to Google it while her partner was dying in front of her, recounts Jonathan's sister, Emma Bailey, 46, who works for the police. They then asked that she take him to the hospital herself. Somehow she managed to get him downstairs and into the car and drove him from their Derbyshire home to the Ripley Hospital. As she drove, Jonathan lost consciousness on pulling into the hospital she found its urgent treatment center closed his weight slumped onto her shoulder in desperation she banged on the windows and phoned 999 again at which point she was advised on how to perform cardiopulmonary resuscitation an unrelated ambulance then pulled up but by the time the paramedics reached jonathan he had died now that is the most heartbreaking appalling story i've probably ever heard about using the nhs Completely heartbreaking for everyone involved. Of course, this being the Telegraph, the focus of the article went on to be NHS reform. They even mentioned that this could be a reason to, to abandon the NHS and replace it with a different system. But I would say the root of the problem is probably simpler. The NHS's problems are in large part a Tory creation. People waiting for treatment had fallen to record lows in 2010, but it surged to four and a half million by 2019, and it's now at six million. And what changed in that time? How can we explain this? Well, contra the telegraph, it can't be how nationalized our health service was then and is now. That's basically stayed the same. What has changed, though, is how much money we've put into it. This graphic shows NHS spending as a share of GDP. As you can see, it steadily climbs during the new Labour years before 2010, when it suddenly starts tumbling. At a pandemic, on top of that funding squeeze, and you don't need a degree in health economics to see what's gone wrong here. Ash, I mean, stories like that in the Telegraph, when I read that, just my, my, my jaw was to the floor. Obviously, that's got a Tory readership. Do you, do you think we are at a point where the public are waking up to the absolute crisis that's going on in, in the health service right now? I would say yes and no. 
Yes, in that I think almost everybody either has experienced themselves or know somebody who's experienced a delay in accessing healthcare, which has made their life in some way worse. Now, it might be for a health problem, which is relatively mild, say like I need antibiotics for a UTI, I can't get an appointment, that's a bit long, I guess I'll drink some cranberry juice, all the way to delays in accessing cancer treatment or ambulances taking a long time to arrive or diagnoses going missed because effectively you've got such a high caseload and such pressures on clinical staff that you know, real problems um, just, you know, go under the radar for too long. And so I think that everybody either has that kind of personal experience themselves and knows somebody who does. The problem is that the connection isn't necessarily being made to 12 years of austerity and also the Andrew Lansley reforms, which happened about 10 years ago, which effectively balkanized the NHS, made the various bits of it compete with one another and did introduce increased privatization in, you know, routine service provision. Now, it's not the kind of privatization where I have to pay upfront in order to receive treatment of some kind. But there are aspects of the NHS like phlebotomy or certain kinds of treatment, certain scans, where you get palmed off into the private sector, where quite frankly, a lot of the time, the treatment that you get is worse. You feel less looked after. It's more chaotic of an experience. And you go, I wish that you could have just done this at my local hospital instead. Now, all of those things have happened. But rather than the press taking a really good look at how the policies of the last 12 years have gotten us into this mess, you do have a right wing media and think tank infrastructure gearing up for another round of attacks on the NHS. And it was something which really hit home to me just last week. I was doing a Radio 4 program called The Moral Maze. It was about the NHS. And the entire editorial framing of it was the NHS is shit. Is it time to look for another funding model? Now, for me, it was really obvious, which is, hang on, you've got this £50 billion funding gap which is the result of conservative austerity. You've got an increased demand because, yes, you do have an aging population. And we've also had a pandemic. Going into that pandemic, we were running our health services hot, which is at emergency capacity all the time. That adds up to a system which is really struggling to deal with the day-to-day caseload, particularly when it comes to elective care. Now, I thought that was perfectly obvious when I was saying stuff like this. People looked at me like I was either naive or a mad ideologue. What was considered the sensible position was to look at privately funded alternatives. And you had two witnesses in the moral maze, they're called, one from Civitas, one from the Institute of Economic Affairs. Nobody apart from me mentioned that Civitas and the Institute of Economic Affairs used to be the same right-wing think tank. So you have got this kind of you know, in the wings, you've got right-wing think tanks, you know, lining up. They're also commissioning pieces of research, which do show that the NHS is struggling. And they've got a direct route into the media to say, here are the problems with the NHS. It's the NHS's fault. It is the structure of the NHS that is the problem. This isn't something which can just be fixed with money. We have to look at alternative funding models. We have to look at privatization. And I don't think it's a coincidence that when you see the Telegraph running stories like this, you're also getting policy proposals coming out into the public eye saying maybe people should pay some amount of money for their hospital care, even if it's just to cover the medical equipment. 
that shows you that there's no crisis that the right can't take advantage of. If the left isn't there to provide an alternative explanation, more truthful explanation, by the way, and also a more feasible, reasonable and practical set of solutions like plug the fucking funding gap. Just throw money at it. That will actually fix the problem, I think. See, I didn't realize that Civitas used to be the, the Institute of Economic Affairs. They're at 55 Tufton Street, that place, you know, where Taxpayers Alliance, all of those organizations work. Whenever I hear Civitas, I always think of Dignitas. And then when they're sort of saying we should privatize the NHS, I'm like, you're on team deaf. Of course you're saying this. But different, different organizations. The biggest problem in the NHS right now seems to be staffing. And a new Health and Social Care Committee report has shone a light on quite how big the challenge is there. This is how it opens. The National Health Service and the social care sector are facing the greatest workforce crisis in their history. As of September 2021, the NHS was advertising 99,460 vacant posts. For social care, it was 105,000. New research by the Nuffield Trust suggests that the NHS in England could be short right now of 12,000 hospital doctors and over 50,000 nurses and midwives. The number of people on a waiting list for hospital treatment rose to a record nearly 6.5 million in April 2022, and the 18-week target for treatment has not been met since 2016. Reasons for that shortfall of workers include the removal of the nursing bursary in 2017 and a shortage of medical school places for trainee doctors. But the report also cites retention of staff as a problem. In short, people aren't staying on as doctors and nurses as long as they used to. And this recent set of interviews from the Royal College of Nurses gives us a sense why. So I've um, gone home crying. I've come in crying. It's gone to that stage. I love my job. I love my patients. I'm actually contemplating leaving healthcare completely. Nurses are on the knees. They are getting burnt out. We're seeing staff, a big increase in staff going off with stress and anxiety. And that's because of the work pressures that they're under at the moment. Staff have gone above and beyond. They've worked extra hours, myself included. Some weeks I would work 50 hours just to make sure that we were safe staffed. And I think now it's become to the point staff are burnt out, we're exhausted, and people are really struggling to do those extra hours. So nurses are massively overworked and they've got growing anxiety about patient safety. What's more, as the Commons report makes clear, they're suffering all this for not nearly enough pay. So the Commons Committee write this. Dr. Denise Schaffer, president of the Royal College of Nursing, told us about, quote, nurses who are unable to pay their rent, unable to afford petrol to get to work, and unable to get a mortgage, unquote, and who were even reliant on food banks. In their written submission, the RCN told us that around six in 10 of their members reported that their pay band or level was inappropriate, mainly because it was felt that, quote, pay levels have failed to keep up with increases in the cost of living, and a perceived failure to reward nursing staff fully for their effort and contribution and dissatisfaction with organisational pay structures. Now, imagine knowing that the person looking after you, you know, you're recovering from an operation, they've potentially worked a 50-hour week, and they're still worrying about paying their rent. This is, this is not a way to run a health service. Now, interestingly, the Health and Social Care Committee, the organisation who, who wrote this report, or the body who wrote this report, is headed by someone not free from blame for the mess the NHS finds itself in. Jeremy Hunt was Health Secretary from 2012 to 2018 and oversaw that historic squeeze to NHS funding we've just shown you. Good Morning Britain put that record to him. 
We haven't got in this situation overnight, have we? These problems have been building up for many, many years. Why didn't you do more when you were in charge of actually changing this situation? Well, I think I did do some important things, but I don't claim that I solved the problem. I set up six new medical schools, increased the number of doctors and nurses we trained by 25%, one of the biggest ever increases. But here's the issue, Charlotte. Not a single one of those extra doctors will reach the front line until 2024 because it takes seven years to train a doctor. And the real issue is that over many governments, we have not bitten the bullet on training enough new doctors for the future. Um, and that's because we've always depended on immigration. We've always thought we can fill the gap if we don't have enough doctors in the, in the NHS by bringing people in from overseas. They're brilliant doctors, brilliant nurses. The NHS would fall over without them. But the truth is, there's a global shortage now of 2 million doctors, 50 million nurses, according to the World Health Organization. Everyone's got their COVID backlogs. And as we are the biggest healthcare system in the world, we just need to bite the bullet and say, we are going to train as many doctors, nurses, midwives, every other frontline professional as we actually going to need. I thought that's a pretty Weasley answer from Jeremy Hunt. Ash, what did you make of that? I thought it was a load of bollocks, to use the <laughs> medical terminology, Michael. <laughs> I mean, we've had staff shortages, bed shortages in the NHS since before the pandemic. Now, of course, the immigration policy that the government has elected to pursue has made it harder to fill those shortages with migrant labour. But that would have been the case pre-Brexit, pre-pandemic. And it's because of underinvestment, the fact that you're making the working conditions worse for people, so they don't want to stay in that particular sector. And also because of the years of pay freeze in the NHS, you had lots of people turning to the private sector because they'd go, well, hang on, I can make more money. I'm not ideologically committed the NHS, I'll shift more of my working hours towards private healthcare if not going there entirely. Because one of the things that people forget, and someone who forgot this recently was Wes Streeting when he talked about using uh, private healthcare capacity to relieve the NHS of some of the patient pressures, is that it's the same staff working in the private sector. So anytime you go, okay, we're going to call on the private sector to relieve the pressures on the NHS, that's actually just using the same nurses, the same doctors who'd otherwise be working for the NHS and paying the private sector through the nose for that labor. So it's not actually a solution to bed shortages or to staffing shortages. If Jeremy Hunt wanted to be honest with people, he would have said, look, I was very happily part of an ideologically neoliberal government which responded to the financial crisis by waging opportunistic warfare on the public sector, and that included the NHS. We also pursued policy changes which made child poverty worse, in-work poverty worse, which creates an increased burden for the NHS because an impoverished population tends to be a less healthy population. It's a population which is in need of more care. You've also slashed the ability of local authorities to step in, provide some of that care. And this is where I'm particularly thinking about social care and mental health care. So you've got even more pressures being placed on hospitals and the NHS. And then you do things like, you know, slash the nurse's bursary, you freeze pay in the NHS. 
you create a working condition which is more stressful, more parcelized, what do you expect the NHS is going to be even if you don't have a pandemic? So this man who quite frankly looks like a newt who swallowed a wasp, I don't want to see him on my TV unless it's to cop to everything he's done. The really awful thing about how far the Overton window has shifted with the radicalization of the Conservative Party is that this guy who is essentially a vandal to our public services is able to present himself as a liberal moderate Tory because he's up against the likes of Liz Truss and Rishi Sunak, who are, you know, really hardcore on things like tax cuts. You know, Nadine Zahawi, when he was throwing his hat into the ring, was talking about 20% budget cuts for every public service department, which would include the NHS. And that means Jeremy Hunt could pop up and go, oh, I'm quite reasonable, really. I mean, no, you're the idiot who got us into this mess. Pfizer Shaheen was one of Labour's most impressive candidates at the last general election. She was director of the trade union-backed think tank class, and she's from the constituency in which she stood, Chinkford and Woodford Green. Shaheen would go on to lose to Ian Duncan-Smith by just over 1,000 votes, the smallest margin ever in what had traditionally been a safe Tory seat. And this weekend, she won the chance to stand again to be Chinkford's MP. Labourist reported that almost 50% of members in the constituency turned up to Shaheen's selection meeting, and by voting for her, they went against the wishes of all neighbouring Labour MPs. Take a look at this graphic shared by Shaheen's opponent before the vote. Shadow Foreign Secretary David Lammy and Shadow Health Secretary Wes Streeting both found time to endorse Shaheen's rival, but Shaheen won anyway. It was an impressive victory for an impressive candidate, but what followed was both predictable and depressing. Ian Leslie is author of books such as How to Disagree. He proved his commitment to pluralism by tweeting this, the selection of an unreconstructed Corbynite to a very winnable seat is an indicator of how much work Starmer has to do to remake the party, an unreconstructed Corbynite. Another figure to comment was former Labour MP Ian Austin. Austin campaigned against Labour in the 2019 election before being appointed to the House of Lords by Boris Johnson. He said this, Corbyn supporter Pfizer Shaheen, who said attacks on him were lies, has been selected to stand for Labour again. This was the attached video. It's a segment on Newsnight from after the 2019 general election result. It features Pfizer Shaheen and Jack Straw. What is safe to say is it didn't go down well with the electorate. It's the worst result. Would you change a lot about your manifesto? Look, from the conversations I was having on the doorstep, it was less about the manifesto more about, I guess, the demonization of Jeremy Corbyn and how that had really sunk in with people. Um, I think it, it was less about specific policies so in the manifesto. Leader, the it was your leader, not the message. It was the way in which the leader has been portrayed. And that's a very different, right? That's and you can't, you can't, Why? how can you make that noise? When time and time again, we've seen so many lies. I'm not saying Jeremy Corbyn's perfect. Of course he's not. But, you know, we've had news nights where they've made him look like, um, like a, a Russian, you know, we've ha had newspaper stories where he t they talk about him as a Czech spy. I mean, it's ridiculous. Sorry, can I just, so say, it, can like, I, can I just say at that point, do you, and I'll let Jack Straw respond, but do you not think that 
the British people can make up their own minds. You're sort of talking about the media like it's got a vice onto people. They also read manifestos. They look at leaflets. They see and read their own things out there. Why did you? you why see, did? Why, why did you sigh there, Jack? Don't you see? Don't you see how the media and the fact that our press is so biased? When was the last time we had a prime minister that was chosen that wasn't supported by Rupert Murdoch, for instance? Right. Of course, he was subject to attack, but I'm afraid it wasn't the media who made up the anti-Semitism over which, and even uh, Len McCluskey has, has said that uh, Jeremy Cusby did, did, did insufficient, uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn did far too little about that and too late. He, that was Corbyn. It wasn't Cor the press who made up that Jeremy Corbyn had, got, had played footsie with terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah. I mean, and, and, to, and I've seen him do this defend the provisional IRA when they were letting off bombs, killing innocent people in this country. I mean, we're not that rerunning their, we're, you're not rerunning their lines again. I mean, what we've got to talk about is true. what did work and what hasn't so worked. You... That tweet from Ian Austin was jumped on by journalist Noah Hoffman, who tweeted, Labour has selected a huge Corbyn supporter and a person who campaigned with Ken Loach, who has made disturbing comments about the Holocaust and Labour anti-Semitism, to stand as a candidate in the next general election. Noah Hoffman, who I'm sure is a committed anti-racist, works as a political reporter at The Sun. Ash, it was an impressive win from Pfizer Shaheen and a depressingly predictable response. What do you make of it all? Okay, I'm going to start with the positive stuff first, because I think sometimes we can get a bit caught up in the negative. And one of the things to really hammer home about Pfizer Shaheen is that she is a very gifted media communicator. She has a PhD. She's a trained economist. And she's somebody who, through her knowledge of her constituency, she grew up there, her ability at bringing out people to campaign for her, nearly unseated Ian Duncan Smith in 2019, which is a year where across the country, the vote was swinging away from Labour. Pfizer Shaheen was able to defy the direction of travel nationally to make something different happen in Chingford and Woodford Green. Now, it didn't happen enough to get her over the line, but that tells you that regardless of whether or not you personally agree with her politics, I'm not asking everyone to look at Pfizer Shaheen and go, she perfectly represents all the things that I stand for. You know, if you're a Blairite, fine, have that disagreement with her. But you cannot deny that she is a really well-qualified political candidate. And if what you want to do is say she shouldn't be the candidate for Chingford and Woodford Green, you're going to have to take her on on her own terms. Now, that's kind of impossible because, as I've said, she has proved her worth to the Labour Party. So instead, what we've seen kick into gear is a smear operation based on association, innuendo, and dog whistles. And I'm afraid to say that this is exactly the kind of hierarchy of racism that the Ford report described. Ian Leslie, who you just quoted from, also quoted an excerpt from an interview with Pfizer Shaheed where she talked about experiencing racism on the doorstep, that as a Muslim woman, she was called a terrorist by someone on the doorstep. She remarked on feeling very unsupported by the party. She remarked on the different status that was afforded to Islamophobia compared to anti-Semitism. Now, looking at that, which, again, regardless of whether or not you personally agree with her politics, you would say this is a pretty serious account of having experienced racism 
as a Muslim woman of color in the field of politics, Ian Leslie went instead, oh, look, see, she's blaming the voters for her loss rather than looking at herself, looking at the leadership. Now, that is exactly an example of that hierarchy of racism where you can look at an account of Islamophobia and go, mm, that kind of sounds like a you problem. And I think when it comes to the way in which 2019 is being litigated via Pfizer Shaheen, it is very depressing because stating plain facts, which is that the smear operation against Jeremy Corbyn was based on lies, right? The check spy thing, that was a fucking lie. The Chairman Mao style bicycle was, you know, if, if it was hysterical as much as it was absurd. And that a lot of the stories which made up the bulk of being able to present him as some kind of died-in-the-wall racist were either false or misreported. Of course, there were problems in the Labour Party. Of course, those problems weren't acted on fast enough. And indeed, the Ford report goes into some detail about why that happened. But a lot of what coloured our understanding of Jeremy Corbyn was not fair and impartial reporting. To state that plain fact means that Emma Barnett steps in, and though Jack Straw is the person who's supposed to debate her, is the one almost standing up for the smear operation. And the reason why is because she thinks it's perfectly legitimate for the press to operate as a wing of establishment politics and dictate who gets to participate and who doesn't. And it just struck me so disingenuous when she intervened and said, oh, can the British people not make up their own mind? Well, maybe they can't, Emma, if you're lying to them all the time. That is the point of having a fair and impartial and honest and accurate media. It means that people are able to make up their mind with the facts, not just with any old bullshit some disgruntled Labour staffer or some right-wing wingnut has texted you that day, Emma. But I digress. Well done, Pfizer Shaheen. I personally wouldn't have had the emotional resilience to come back to a place which had been a site of so much pain. And I think that that in itself deserves some recognition. I think that she's a really capable candidate. And I think she will come under specific attacks because she is left wing and she's a woman of color and she's Muslim, but she's more than equipped to take them on. Let's have a look at what Pfizer Shaheen had to say um, about the Ferrari on Twitter after her selection. So I tweeted my solidarity to her this weekend, and this is her response. I'm ignoring the haters, Michael. Next week, I'm meeting the Indonesian government to discuss how they can deliver a Green New Deal. These guys acting like I'm not good enough have no idea what they're talking about. I will not be bullied. Although, saying that, I'm not making the same mistake as others. I have a libel lawyer ready. So if you see anything, direct message me. Now, I've already seen some high follower accounts delete their Shaheen-related tweets this weekend. So let's hope this strategy is already working. And it goes without saying, all power to Pfizer Shaheen. Before we move on, we should let you know that to celebrate Navarra Media hitting 10,000 supporters right now, we're offering 10% off in our merch store over at shop.navaramedia.com. The discount applies to everything and lasts until midnight on Saturday. We've got t-shirts, water bottles, socks, and tote bags. That link again is shop.navaramedia.com. Now we're going to move on to our next story. Mick Lynch has been speaking truth to power again. Here he is on LBC, blowing apart the government's narrative on inflation. He's speaking to Ben Kentish. The government says that doing that to raise wages by the extent to which you want or that you're suggesting would be inflationary. It would drive up the cost of living and therefore effectively negate the pay increase. What do you say to that? 
Well, it's patently not true, is it? There's this myth put around by the powers that be, by the media, uh, their friends in the Daily Mail, the Bank of England, the Times, the LBC, perhaps Institute for Fiscal they, Studies. Yes, there's quite they, a lot of there's quite a lot of experts around. saying this. The majority of people in this country have not had a pay rise for mm. three years against inflation. Mm. Real terms pay rise, real wages, mm. as it's often called in economics. And for many millions of people uh, in, the, in the public sector, and that ranges from the armed forces through the police, ambulance workers, healthcare workers, teachers, and all sorts of people, have not had a pay rise since the Cameron Osborne sure. government. So it cannot be the case that the low paid in this country, the people below 40,000, let's say, just as a, a, as a mark, are responsible for rising prices. Rising prices are created by profit. So the big the big shots in this economy, the Rishi Sunaks, billionaires, uh, and others that live on dividend and shareholdings, are raking in money. We have more billionaires than we've ever had mm. in this society. The super rich have never been richer. So what's responsible for price rises is the accumulation of profit in our economy. And it cannot be that a hospital porter is responsible for pushing up the price of petrol and the price of gas and the price but of... But there are respected economists saying that that exactly is the case. That if you give millions of people money, they spend more money, prices go up. That, other, that's what they're there saying. There are other economists from another school, the Keynesian school, that say that is completely utterly wrong. It depends who you read and what you believe. So you re reject you believe, that completely. If you believe in Tory politics, you'll believe that workers are responsible for a price-wage spiral. It's not the case. Wages are chasing prices. Prices are not chasing wages. Because virtually everybody mm. below the top strata is poorer now than they were 10 years ago. So it cannot be that the low paid are creating price increases. Do you see this as effectively them trying to... It strikes me as what you're saying is the government is trying to scapegoat the low paid workers for the price rises that everyone is experiencing. Well, as a part of that, the government is trying, on behalf of their friends in the city and the people that own the means of production in society, to keep wages low. If you keep wages low, you extend uh, and put more value into profit. And that's exactly what's happening. So if you work in the private sector, in a fulfillment centre for Ocado, for DHL, for Amazon or one of those people, you're really struggling and you need a pay rise. And the, the cost of living uh, problem will be addressed through the pay packet, not through doles from the government every mm. now and again, which are, of course, temporary. Pay rises tend to be permanent. And that's what we need in this society. We need lower pay transformed into reasonable pay. He nailed it again. He always nails it. He never, ever lets us down when it comes to making those arguments. He says, wages are chasing prices. Prices are not chasing wages. And I think that's such an important point. You know, it's not the case that prices are being driven by these greedy workers. It's that workers are asking for a little bit more money because the prices are going through the roof. We can show you a couple charts to prove that. This is from Sky News. Weekly wages rose steadily from 2000 to 2008, from £400 to £480. If they had continued on that trajectory, they would now be £600 per week. So that would be the average wage for everyone. But what actually happened? Well, after the financial crash of 2008 and the austerity that followed, wages collapsed and they had only just recovered to 2008 levels last year and they're going to fall again this year. So we're being told that workers demanding wage rises has caused inflation, but it turns out wages haven't even risen. Make it make sense. Of course, it doesn't make sense. Inflation is being driven by increased energy prices and increased profits, not our measly pay packets, or at least not by most of our pay packets. This chart is pretty mind-blowing. 
It's from Bloomberg, and it puts the lie to any idea that in this cost of living crunch, we're all in it together. What the lines show are the percentage increase in pay for different people according to where they fall in the income spectrum. The top 1% of earners have had a bigger increase in pay than anyone else this year. Their pay rise was 9.1%. That's above the 8% inflation. In contrast, every other group got pay offers below inflation. The lowest increases were for the lowest paid. With inflation at 8%, the poorest workers in Britain are getting a raise of less than 2%. Ash, the time seems ripe for class war, doesn't it? I think that there's a reasonable case to be made that when you have a political class from Keir Starmer all the way to Liz Truss, hell-bent on ignoring the cost of living crisis that's before their very eyes and the solutions that are needed to deal with it. You've got prices going up, not just of household energy bills, but commercial fuel, which then in turn pushes up the price of uh, food. You've got huge disruption to grain supply, which again, driving up the cost of food. And you've got landlords putting up their rents over and above inflation, sometimes as high as 15, 20%. What option are you leaving people in order to advocate for their own interests? Yes, you've got the power of organized labor. And that's where people like Mick Lynch are really important, not simply because he's such a gifted media performer. And of course he is. I mean, I think he must have been a postman in another life because he always delivers. But because the point that he's making is that the only solution you have as a worker is collective bargaining. That is the one power you have to better your pay or better conditions. But for lots of people, that's not going to be an immediate option for them. Either because the trade union movement has taken historic hits, the attacks of Margaret Thatcher, the lack of will amongst the, you know, the new Labour government to repeal anti-trade union legislation. The fact that yes, you do have union membership going up, but that sense of political education, organizing know-how isn't quite there yet. And a trade union isn't, isn't always an option for people. And then you've got people who are just simply not part of the workforce for whatever reason. They're unemployed, you know, they're long term unemployed or maybe they're students. I think that for those people who are still having to deal with the cost of living, I mean, it would not surprise me one bit if we did see riots in the near future. Just thinking about the area that I live in, I was talking to the guy who runs the corner shop and he was showing me the receipts for his stock orders. And he was like, look, everything's gone up by a third or a quarter. What am I supposed to do? And so that means he's having to put his prices up. In an area which, you know, yes, has got a lot of gentrification, but it's still got really high levels of child poverty. It's got higher than average uh, proportion of people living in poverty in multiple occupancy homes and also higher than average unemployment. What are those people supposed to do? I come out my house to turn the corner and I see the line to the food bank getting longer every single day. And I mean, visually, it is getting longer every single day. And this is in the summer. This is before the October price cap goes up again potentially leaving households vulnerable to average energy bills of £3,000 a year. I mean, when you couple total political abandonment with those kinds of economic conditions, I wouldn't be surprised if we had riots. And in my opinion, they would be entirely morally and politically justified. Labour are once again getting themselves in a twist over public ownership. 
It all started with an interview the Shadow Chancellor gave to the Today programme. You started by saying this was a bit of a rethink for your own party. Does this mean no to nationalisation of water, of energy companies, of trains when Labour get back in, if they do? Well, I've set out uh, fiscal rules that say all spending, all day-to-day -day spending will be funded uh, by day-to-day -day tax um, Is revenues. it no or yes to nationalisation? Well, it's just within our fiscal rules to be spending billions of pounds on nationalising things. That just doesn't stack up against right. our fiscal rules. Okay. No, that's very clear, because those were a commitment, but just to be absolutely clear, they're, they're not a commitment now. Well, they were, they were a commitment in a manifesto that secured our worst results since 1935. Right. Well, you, they were also a commitment made in Keir Starmer's leadership campaign. But putting dishonesty to one side, Reeves's comments were also completely economically illiterate. Her fiscal rule means that Labour won't borrow for current spending. So that's for things like wages or pensions. But it does allow Labour to borrow to spend on capital, which is exactly what nationalising the railways would represent. The logic here is pretty obvious. Railways also bring in revenue. Businesses buy assets for a reason. When you convert your cash into an asset, you haven't actually got poorer. You've borrowed to invest. That's what Labour are supposed to be doing. After the interview, a Labour spokesperson tried to clear the issue up. So they said, we are pragmatic about public ownership as long as it sits within our fiscal rules. A point Rachel was underlining in the interview by referencing this framework. For example, we know there is a positive role for rail in public ownership. And um, so that seems like the Labour spokesperson rolling back a little bit, although, you know, obviously repeating the, the illiterate nonsense about the fact that nationalising anything would go against the fiscal rules. You, you might have cases for or against nationalising, but it shouldn't have anything to do with this fiscal rule, which is about current spending. Moving on, Keir Starmer was then asked about the party's position during a speech announcing Labour's latest economic plans. What exactly is your position on public ownership of energy and water firms? You appear to have ruled out nationalisation, yet you still have some interest in common ownership. Can you explain what that means? Well, look, I take a pragmatic approach rather than an ideological one. I agree with what Rachel Reeves said this morning. Um, having come through the pandemic, um, it's very important that we have very, very clear priorities. Um, and that's why we've set out fiscal rules already as an opposition. Rachel did that at uh, conference last year. That's way ahead of the general election, setting out our priorities. And my priority, as I hope is obvious from this morning, is growth. The mission of the next Labour government will be growth. Um, and, you know, that partnership with business is where I see that growth coming from. So my approach here is, is pragmatic, not ideological. My mission is growth. And underpinning that mission is a partnership arrangement with business where the mission is set by an incoming Labour government and we empower business to work with us on delivering on that mission. Every time he speaks, he reminds me of that Simpsons gag where you've got the, I think it's supposed to be you know, a centrist democratic politician who's saying, and we will move forwards, not backwards, upwards, not downwards, and twirling, twirling, twirling towards freedom. I'm pragmatic, not ideological, and I like growth. What, you know, who, who would disagree with that? In any case, it sounded there, um, like Keir Starmer was saying he agreed with Rachel Reeves, even though the spokesperson implied that she'd in fact misspoke. And the most clarity came from Shadow Transport Minister Louise Haig. So following the confusion from both Starmer and Reeves, she wrote this on Twitter. UK Labour is committed to public ownership of rail and putting the public back in control of our bus network to drive down prices, improve services and meet net zero. And there she was, she was quote tweeting something from Andy Burnham, who was celebrating 
Manchester's success in regulating or bringing into public ownership the buses there. Ash, the big day, which was supposed to be, you know, Labour getting on the front foot when it came to the economy, it wasn't giving competence, was it? Michael, I'm not voting for these people. I'm sorry. If I was in Chingford and Woodford Green, I'd vote for Pfizer Shaheen, but I don't live there. I'm not voting for these people. And let me tell you why. One, this is not screaming competence. This is not screaming with people with a vision. This is not screaming people with a plan. If you don't even know your own position on what you're going to renationalize and what you're not going to, please just fuck off out of here. You're wasting everybody's time. I'm a busy woman. I'm a busy woman. I have hobbies. I cannot with this kind of stuff. Two, there is a level of, I wouldn't even call it economic illiteracy. It is a unwillingness to put forward anything which might upset right-wing billionaire press barons. And so that means doing this, you know, absolutely ludicrous communications Charleston, where you're like, oh, we're not going to nationalize, but oh, we're not saying we've changed our mind. And you've got various people giving out different messages at different points of the day because you want to keep, you know, your voters on side, but more so than that, you don't want Viscount Rothermere to tear you a new one. Now, I'm sorry, a Labour government at some point is going to have to run the risk of annoying Rupert Murdoch, run the risk of annoying Viscount Rothermere, run the risk of annoying the Barclay brothers, because your interests, what you've been elected to do, are fundamentally incompatible with the interests of these right-wing billionaire press barons. So just fucking say something. There's also a point here about the emptiness of growth as a signifier for a better economy. Because yes, you might have an economy that's growing. And yes, in parts of our economy, there is growth. There is a growth of billionaire and oligarch wealth. That doesn't mean you have growth for everybody in terms of people's pay packets going up, the standard of living going up, the quality of their public services going up. And this is something I've not actually seen many people pick up on. Kistama talking about growth and nothing else is essentially a trickle down argument that if you grow the economy, that wealth is going to trickle down and end up in the pockets of the lowest paid workers. Now, what we know after 40 years of trickle down experimentation is that that is a total load of hooey. So not only is Kistama being totally vacuous, which let's be fair, isn't anything new for him. Um, he's pushing an economic model which has been thoroughly discredited. So uh, not just on the level of communications competence, but economic competence. I don't trust these people. I don't know about you. What do you think? Uh, I mean, I also live in a safe seat, so it doesn't really matter who I vote for. I think if I lived in a marginal, I probably would. You know, depend, I, I think if I lived in a Tory Labour marginal, I probably would vote for them wherever I was, because I do, I do think it would be really good to get this Tory government out. I agree with all the other points you make, though. And I mean, I think what's very frustrating about Rachel Reeves is it's not just that she's not taking the positions I want her to take, it's that she's proactively misinforming the public. Because if, if you're sort of proactively telling the public that you can't invest in stuff because that will break these fiscal rules, you know, we, we, we can't invest because we'd be borrowing too much. That's, that's active misinformation. And it's active misinformation, in a sense, which serves a right-wing narrative and is actually going to really work against the interests of making growth. Because if we want to grow the economy, we are going to have to borrow a lot of money to invest. Is what businesses do. It's what the state is going to have to do. But you've got Rachel Reeves sort of standing up saying, oh, no, we have to be limited by this fiscal rule. And then she gets her fiscal rule wrong. And then it's backed up by the Labour Party spokespeople. Then it's backed up by Keir Starmer. And either none of them understand their own policy, or they're all just willing to, as you say, go along with saying, whatever they please, if they think it will please certain right-wing media barons. 
it's a very depressing analysis of politics where you say, well, clearly the big challenge we have isn't, you know, giving an answer to people who can't get on the housing ladder. It's not giving an answer to people whose wages have stagnated for, for decades. It's not giving an answer to people who want, you know, a, a green tra- transition. Our biggest challenge is not offending right-wing media barons who own Britain's newspapers, and that is our key priority. You know, it's, it's, it's not unreasonable. It's coherent. You know, the last Labour leader who won a general election had the media on side. He also had prioritised getting Rupert Murdoch on side. So, you know, I can see why people around Keir Starmer want him to do that. But it, it's not a positive vision of politics. If that's all this is about, I mean, you can see why people don't want to get involved. Ash, we're going to wrap up there. It's been a pleasure, as always, being joined by you on a Monday night. Thank you for having me. I'm actually going to see you in two minutes because you're in the next room. So don't mislead your audience. Don't act like I'm far away. I could practically smell you. That's almost unfair. I can't wait to see you in about 30 seconds. It gives me an added incentive to wrap up quickly. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>